0: This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. Jeff Bezos is my daddy, and the best way to support my daddy is by going to boardwalkaudio.com/oncomedywriting, click the supporter artist button, shop on Amazon and like Earlywood, and I get a little kickback. Please feed the daddy. This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by the Satire and Humor Festival. There's a brand new festival in New York, and it's coming up March 22nd to Mar- through March 24th at Caveat and Magna Theater. It's the Satire and Humor Festival. It focuses on the kind of written humor and satire pieces you would see in pieces, places like McSweeney's, The New Yorker, The Belladonna, and Points and Case. It's run by two former uh, OCW guests, uh, Caitlin Kunkel and James Fulta. The festival has six workshops, panels ranging from diversity in the field to how people went on to write for TV, and a panel on writing, selling, and marketing humor books. Uh, that sounds great. You know, It seems like a great thing for uh, people who listen to this podcast. It also seems like, I think it's during a spring break, maybe. I, I should know. I do have spring break, but I don't think it's during mine. Uh, the festival will feature Emma Allen, the editor of The New Yorker's Shouts and Murmurs, as well as the cartoons. Uh, right, oh, sorry. I read that wrong. She edits the Shouts and Murmurs, as well as the cartoons. Writers from McSweeney's Full Frontal, Late Night with Seth Myers, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and more. Check out their website, www.satireandhumor.com, for festival passes and one-off tickets to events. Hey, I recommend it uh go go do it sound uh, if you know when i was in college and it was during my spring break this would definitely be something i would have done uh because i am a comedy nerd which honestly if you're listening to this you have to be why would you listen to this if you weren't it would be funny if someone didn't like comedy but listened to this uh it would be weird i guess my friends are kind of like that i'm kind of rambling here but saturnhumor.com go check that out her festival passes one off tickets to events check it out
1: On comedy writing, on comedy
0: writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast with the Business of Craft of Writing Comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. And our guest this week is Claire Friedman. She worked on Wall Street for many years, then worked on the business side of entertainment, then transitioned into writing for SNL and Jesus and Marrow. Uh, so hopefully this is a good episode for all of you out there stuck in a career uh, that, you know, takes care of you and pays well, but maybe it's not what you want to do and you want to be doing comedy writing. So hopefully hopefully you guys find some uh, good stuff in here. So here is Claire Friedman. Claire, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, where are you from originally?
1: I actually grew up in New York City.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. What, what part of New York City?
1: The Upper West Side.
0: Okay, cool. What yeah. was it like growing up there?
1: It was great. I, uh, you know, typical Upper West Side experience. I did, actually did some stand-up comedy when I was a kid, so only because there was a stand-up comedy club on the Upper West Side. Oh, was, wow. Yeah, it was stand-up New York, conveniently located mm-hmm. for me, so maybe that's why I even do comedy in the first place.
0: What, what was it, like, how do you go from, like, how do you, as a nine-year-old, how do you go to become a stand-up comic like how you do stand up comedy at a club.
1: Yeah, well I mean my it's all because my mom actually got a flyer for a talent show at stand up New York when I was a kid and I really wanted to do it but I didn't have any skills. <laughs> like, I couldn't sing or dance or act or do anything like that, so we wrote a stand-up comedy routine together and i went and performed it there and i ended up coming in second place wow i won a ten dollar gift certificate to barnes and nobles
0: oh well, that's not bad i
1: know back then that was like 20 bucks right
0: oh so. <laughs> uh, well, you wrote it with your mom yes what, what was like uh, what was the material like
1: and it was mostly about uh you know kids at school
0: <laughs> yeah classic
1: yeah you know, People... fire drills. <laughs>
0: People do uh, like give a lot of like uh, leeway to kids doing stand-up.
1: Oh yeah, totally. Well, I mean, obviously, it I got a, I got a lot of laughs. laughs. I mean, I I'm sure it was a terrible routine, but obviously, uh, it was joyful enough mm-hmm. that I decided to keep going with it. So
0: right, but I think even like teens get like a lot of leeway. Yeah, for, like uh, I don't know. I, I guess, don't like, give leeway to teens. No way. No, not in this city. If they've at least.
1: hit puberty, then but that sounded dirty. I don't know.
0: <laughs> New York City teens are scary, yeah, to
1: me. yeah, they're huge, they're adults, <laughs>
0: yeah, they, they're talking all the time very loudly, they yeah. scare. they scare the hell out of me, yeah, me too uh what, what kind of comedy stuff were, like were you into growing up?
1: I was a big Seinfeld fan, yeah. um, I mean, also the Simpsons was probably one of the biggest influencers on me doing comedy and just like the joke style that I'm into, mm-hmm. um. I watched a lot of TV growing up. I would say I preferred that to interacting with people. (laughs) And, you know, my parents let me do it. They never had any rules for how much TV I could watch. So, Yeah. yeah, I would say I pretty much watched all of the hot shows of the 90s. All those great sitcoms. Mad About You, The Frasier. Oh, Frasier is still a top 10 for me.
0: I watched my first episode of Frasier recently. Uh, it was the... wow!
1: Your first episode, my first episode.
0: Cause I did like a there was like a. Do Fraser. you know how many <laughs> Emmys they won? <laughs> there was like a, a Frasier comedy show that I did, and so I had to do some research, of course, on Frasier. And the episode I watched was um, it was the Halloween episode where Roz is pregnant. Oh yeah, uh, phenomenal! Yeah, it's a great, a great
1: it's, it's a great episode of television. Right,
0: it's all it's like it's all like good, very funny hijinks. The did entire you watch?
1: Way. Yeah, the entire thing is a French farce. Just yeah, the whole show. Did you watch all of the? seasons after that one uh, it's, episode? It's,
0: no it's the only episode i watched
1: what you loved an episode of television and you didn't binge on the rest
0: well it's you Who know are you yeah i don't know i'm not i'm not a big binger guy in general but uh, you know
1: i wasn't creeped out that a stranger anonymously <laughs> contacted me on twitter and invited me to his apartment and i showed up but i am very creeped out that you only watched one episode of Frasier.
0: M- Mio, I'll give Kelsey and David.
1: Yeah, you're on a first name basis yeah, with them. Yeah, <laughs> I
0: call him Mr. Kelsey.
1: I call him the Graham.
0: <laughs> what's he up to these days?
1: Um. Well, he <laughs> we was just in- talk very seriously <laughs> now. About yeah. Kelsey Grammer. He was in a uh, Netflix film.
0: Okay, so that probably didn't didn't get many eyes.
1: Yeah. No. That's no. no I actually, you know I haven't followed his career.
0: I Tragically. I I watched I'm that. I'm sure he's show. up to big
1: things though.
0: Right. I watched that show Boss. Uh
1: huh.
0: I like that show Boss. I
1: actually am not familiar with that.
0: Yeah, he plays a very dark man in that, Oh, in I that think show. he
1: might be a dark man in real life too.
0: Well there's the whole thing with his wife, right? That's yeah. very uh, all right. Well, that's enough, yeah. that's enough Kelsey Grammar talk there. Uh is it, was it interesting watching Seinfeld like living in New York? And, like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I loved all the spots that they showed the exteriors of, but even as a kid, I realized that it was all just filmed on some sort of L.A. back lot. Mm-hmm. So I would go to the bakery, you know, where they right. fought over you know black and white cookie or right. whatever, vodka, and inside it would be a very different experience, which <laughs> was sort of sad for me as a child. But, you know, many years later, I got to go on the back lot where Seinfeld was filmed and see what wow. New York was for... Yeah, in LA. Oh yeah, those
0: New York backlots. Like I did a studio tour. Those yeah, New York backlots are very weird. Yeah, because they look pretty good actually. And then like like for like a second, and then yeah, like, it looks
1: great. And then when you're standing there, you're just like, this looks like total shit. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh,
0: what was I gonna say? I said something to say about Seinfeld. Oh, the soup Nazi guy. Yeah. He um. He, I've like, never had his soup. I was gonna say he like made a huge career out of of, out of yeah uh, like the being soup the, man being based on it. Yeah, which is crazy. I
1: know. That's, that's so difficult of, to do. That's sort of like the Kramer tour in New York, too. Oh,
0: I don't know about this. The guy
1: who uh, Cosmo Kramer is based on is some other man named Kramer who has like a full Seinfeld tour, bus tour that he does just based on the fact that his name is Kramer. Oh, wow. And he takes people around to all the sites from Seinfeld, probably including the suit man, mm-hmm. and, you know, tries to profit off of his name, which is very smart and entrepreneurial. Right.
0: Of him. Well, too bad that Kramer has been canceled since 2007. That's
1: true. Anyway. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, every topic we go down <laughs> yeah. leads to some dark cancellation. Uh, Kelsey's not canceled. No, Kelsey's not he canceled. He just has a dark past. He's a dark past. You he can't mean? blame him. For
0: that. You know, I will say, actually, he actually also has a sad past, which know, again, we're not going to go into. Know, it's we're really not going to go sad. into. Uh, but uh, were you doing any other comedy stuff growing up?
1: Um. Well, not when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I was just doing a bunch of stand-up. And when oh, I was so you a-
0: continued doing stand-up?
1: Yes, for, oh, wow. I did it for nine years. Oh, so you were like
0: a teen stand up then? Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs>
1: and I sucked, no. <laughs> um, my jokes were bad. Um, yeah, no, I did I did stand up comedy for nine years when I was younger. Wow. Yeah. What
0: was what was that like?
1: It was great. I mean I think I enjoyed it at first. I would do like birthday parties and stuff. And, but eventually when I turned around 15, I had no interest in doing it at all. But my mom wanted me to keep doing it because it would look good on a college application. <laughs> so I think I did like begrudgingly three years of stand up comedy as a teenager. Like teen, some teens rebel, like get a tattoo, and I would just like be a bitch backstage at a comedy club. <laughs> uh, no, but I'm glad I did it. it. It ended up, you know, it ended up being a pretty cool experience that I, you know, got a lot out of, I think.
0: Does it look good on a college resume to say that you've been doing stand up for nine years?
1: Uh I think it Interesting. helped. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe back then it was a little bit weirder. I feel like more and more people do stand up now right. too. Uh
0: where'd you go to college? I went to Harvard. Okay. Uh did you uh what did you do there? What'd you major in?
1: I majored in economics. Wow, okay. But I I wrote for the lampoon. So oh, I did okay. a bunch of comedy writing in college.
0: What was the lampoon like back then?
1: Back then, oh, but Fuck back you. then, I don't know, I, I <laughs> hundred years ago, yeah, uh, with the yeah, Conan O'Brien, yeah, and, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, no, I was there with Wheelwright in 1876. Um, <laughs> it was great. I, I mean, for me, it was a really good. I had been performing, and it was a good transition for me into writing, which is something that I found that I preferred, and it was a good le- learning opportunity because. The Lampoon can be a tough environment for jokes. They don't let you get away with bad ones. And mm-hmm. it's also a place where you can't be precious about your writing. If you write something that other people don't laugh at, you just cut it and move on. So I think I got very comfortable with revising and editing over and over again and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. So
0: so it sounds like a kind of a cut-through uh, cut uh, system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say cutthroat. I mean, once you're on staff, it's just about getting the best stuff in the magazine mm-hmm. whenever the magazine comes out, which is infrequently. <laughs> despite our claim that like 300,000 people subscribe to it. I think that includes people in prison who get free subscriptions. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it's more just about like being efficient about making the best comedy. Mm-hmm
0: is the lampoon is it uh is it themed issues or is it just like yeah okay so how do you guys like choose the themes and whatnot
1: every issue has an editor and that editor picks the theme
0: were you ever an editor
1: um i was an editor of a parody issue so in addition to making you know five issues a year of the magazine we would also do parodies of either other publications like the school newspaper or parodies of you know national geographic or things like that so i worked on oh and we would do a program parody every year for the harvard yale football game Mm -hmm. and i think i was an editor for one of those
0: do you uh was there like a lot of like uh, dumb drama around the school about some stuff
1: yeah of course i mean you know we're a bunch of drunk college kids yeah who are partying in a castle and totally shit faced every weekend, so drama arises. Mm-hmm. And we would also do a lot of pranks, uh, which would get <laughs> us in trouble with both, you know, our peers and the college.
0: Right. What's like a good a good prank you guys did?
1: Um. So there was this running, gat rivalry with the Harvard Crimson, the newspaper, where we would just steal chair their their president's chair. Okay and once we i feel like the statute of limitations has passed as i tell you about breaking into a building hypothetically allegedly a couple of people on staff broke into the crimson and stole the chair and um, we had danny bonaducci coming <laughs> up for like to film this VH1 show with us and as like the last scene of the show we presented him with the crimson chair <laughs> Uh, on TV, and we had added a plaque. It had the list of all of the plaques of Crimson presidents, like FDR and whatever, and we added Danny Bonaducci oh. uh, as a plaque on the back of the chair. Wow, yeah,
0: so Danny, wait, but the the craziest part of that story is that <laughs> Danny Bonaducci came to film his vH one show at Harvard. Uh, yeah,
1: we would just invite people who we thought it would be cool to hang out with. <laughs> and somebody who was on staff with me picked Danny Bonaducci. <laughs> And he came, we invited him, and we were like, oh, we'll throw you a party, it'll be great. And he had a VH1 show at the time, and he actually asked us if he could come. It was called Breaking Bonaduce. Breaking Bonaduce, that's right, okay. Yeah. Wow. And,
0: Breaking Bonaduce.
1: Yeah, and he just came, and he, he, the whole time he was telling us that he was sober, but oh he was, you know, obviously drinking for the entire production of this show. Wow. Um, But, yeah, it was great. It's a great episode. You can still get it on iTunes, and in it you can see... The, that was the first date between me and my current husband. So. Wow. Current husband. Current <laughs> husband, yeah. As I said that, I was just like, <laughs> he was my boyfriend then. <laughs> we met uh, at a party for Danny Bonaducci. Wow.
0: And now, uh, yeah. That's crazy. True love. Bonaduce is tied to you forever.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Wow. Yeah. Did you invite him to the wedding?
1: No, but I should have.
0: He's filming a, a CISO show?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: why do you think so many successful people come from the Lampoon?
1: I think it's a lot of people who go to college knowing they want to be a comedy writer. Mm. And so like my whole childhood, I thought, oh, I really want to write for The Simpsons one day. What's the way to do that? And people were saying, oh, the Harvard Lampoon, that's where all these writers come from. So I think and I think that's true of a lot of my friends from college. They actually went to college already thinking they wanted to be Mm. TV writers. So I think you get a lot of people who sort of come up with that early and sort of commit to it early and, you know, work at it. Um, also, it's an amazing network. You know, like a lot of people don't hit the ground running when they graduate. They don't know a lot of people in the industry. So you have the benefit of knowing a lot of people who have mm-hmm. sort of been there first.
0: What's your uh, favorite Lampoon piece that you did?
1: Oh, my God. I haven't thought about this in <laughs> so long. Um, I, like, I'm going to botch this. I mean, I know I wrote one that was about... Adam Smith and the Wealth yeah. of Nations, which is like the nerdiest. This is exactly the type of comedy you think would be like a Harvard Lampoon magazine. Like, right. oh, it's so funny uh, about how the invisible hand wasn't real. Um, but I don't remember any of the jokes, so this is a very boring story. But...
0: <laughs> so after college, uh, what would you do?
1: I went into investment banking. Oh, okay. Yeah, I worked in finance for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I went to business school. And then I decided that I wanted to do comedy writing, which is something that I had always wanted to do. But when I was graduating from college, everybody was going into finance and consulting, and so I rode that wave.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of people who did that. What's that What's that job like?
1: Um, It was insane, I would say. I mean, I was working in the mortgages division at one of the major investment banks during the mortgage crisis.
0: Oh, okay. So I
1: got to, like, really see from, you know, ground zero. I got to, like, really create the mortgage crisis for this country. <laughs> um, it was, you know, it, you know it was a wild time. It wasn't as crazy, like, there weren't, like, it wasn't, like, super druggy or anything like that, mm-hmm. but it was definitely a stressful place. I worked 100-hour-plus weeks. and
0: Yeah, so, like, how did the... So you worked like in the mortgage department during the mortgage crisis. Yeah. I mean, I mean you
1: welcome America.
0: <laughs> I mean like that seems like the most insane place to be in wall street at the most insane time. Right. Yes. I, I don't even, I don't even I, know. Like, I,
1: it's like, I was sort of, tra- it's like, it was somewhat of a traumatic experience. I was there for five years. I basically wrote out the whole mortgage crisis. And then as soon as it was over, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to business school. Right. As soon as people started making money again, I was just mm-hmm. like, okay, I've had enough of this. But it was just like to be on the trading floor and watching people. Like you know, I feel like ten to fifteen percent of the firm got fired while I was there, and watching people in my group leave, it was it was very sad. I mean, I'm sure a lot of like Americans outside had a lot of Schrodinger about it, just because bankers, whatever. Uh, But you know, it was an insane experience to watch. It gave me a lot of perspective in terms of um being risk averse I would say too in my life cuz I saw all these huh. people who thought this was going to like last forever and then they watched the entire economy tank and it was a surprise.
0: Yeah. How do you think do you think working as an investment banker shaped your comedy at all?
1: Uh it maybe made me a little bit more cynical about things, but not really. I mean, I was trying to do stand up and stuff when I was working in banking just to like and I would sometimes do material based on finance, but I have moved away from that, I would say. <laughs> people don't care about it, believe it or not. I was like, hey, I've got a great idea for a Bitcoin piece last year and people were just like, nah, pass. Oh, Bitcoin's hot. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> not anymore. Now Bitcoin's dead.
0: How would you uh how'd you balance like doing comedy with your job?
1: Uh I mean it was mostly just like being young and staying up all night. Mm-hmm. And um trying to when something funny would happen at work just write it down and then you know most open mics were at 10 11 p.m so Mm -hmm. that was i would just go after work and do it it wasn't easy but i felt like i needed to do it Mm -hmm. otherwise i was gonna have the soul sucked out of me in finance
0: and so when you left uh finance where did you go again you went to to business school yeah and so then and were you doing comedy during that time
1: i was doing stand-up i was also sort of anticipating moving towards um not necessarily the business side of entertainment, but being like creative exec or something. Mm -hmm. And I went after business school to do development stuff and, you know, would read scripts and think, I really just want to write. Like it was sort of like I always wanted to write, um, but I was nervous about pursuing it as a career just because it's a tough career and the chances of it working out are slim. And I had seen a lot of people try and have it not go the way they wanted to. So it just took me a long time to feel like, all right, now I have to do this.
0: Right. So you were, did you work in the business side of television stuff?
1: Yeah. I would, well, so I worked in like um, development. So I was working for a, a network where it's, it's sort of on the business side and that it's corporate, but it's somewhat creative in that you're involved in like picking the shows that go on the air. But there was definitely business aspect to it, like thinking about, you know, merchandising and licensing yeah. and all that other s- stuff.
0: What would like surprised you about working like on the the business side of things?
1: Just how much shit is out there? like there's right. like I mean I was doing development right when Netflix was starting to be like a huge buyer of scripted television and just watching the like market balloon and just seeing how many scripts would come in every day. and as a writer, you're thinking like, Oh, if this script is good, it's gonna get out there and it's gonna be made. But just seeing how much content gets sent around from a development side, it's definitely eye-opening for a writer mm-hmm. to um, to sort of see just how many people are out there creating like pretty good stuff. Yeah. So that was the thing that I was sort of most surprised about. Like for every show that goes on the air, like so many hundreds of scripts get passed on or read right. before that happens. So.
0: Do you think like because right now there's like. Probably more there's more content obviously. I hate saying content, but like there's more like shows and stuff than ever before. Yeah. Do you think there's gonna be like a a, like a bursting of the bubble at some point?
1: I mean I hope not. As a writer, I'm like I hope the bubble grows and grows and grows. (laughs) Uh but you know, it just depends on if places like Netflix and Amazon keep using tech money to buy more content. Yeah. Like networks I feel like have a more limited budget in terms of what they can go after, but you know, these other streaming companies are really driving that expansion.
0: Yeah, and it, it's weird because, like, I, it's very... No one really knows how much money they're making or losing. Right. And so it's, could, it could go belly up at any point, which is weird.
1: That's true. I mean, Netflix claims that because, like, the whole world watches what they're putting on the air mm-hmm. that they're earning enough. And they have a different business model, obviously, because they don't rely on commercials right. or anything like that. But... Uh, yeah, I guess there isn't that much visibility into any of that, so. Well,
0: it's also, like, they say, like, you know, like, Bird Box or whatever, it's like 60 million people watched, and, like, there's, I don't think that's true.
1: Right, and that includes people who, like, started it and watched two minutes and turned it off. Right. There's, like, some amount of time that it, but I did watch Bird Box. Did you watch it?
0: I didn't, because I was, I, because I felt that everyone. You, want, you didn't
1: like those numbers, so you, Well,
0: Honestly, I felt that like uh, the weird like Twitter push. I don't know how how much you're on Twitter, but the weird Twitter push of it felt very fake to me. Yeah, to the point where the Bird
1: Box it, challenge, the
0: Bird Box challenge. I feel like just like robots talking about Bird Box <laughs> all the time. I think
1: that Netflix just hires a bunch of Russian bots to like push out Bird Box challenge. I, I really
0: think maybe, <laughs> and then people like did jump onto it. I think people like, organic not. Not organically, but people did jump onto it, and then it became and bigger And you think because that I... because
1: you thought the Bird Box Challenge sucked, or...?
0: I honestly... Like actually, the way you say Bird Box Challenge, I forget what that was. There was like something blindfolded, right? Yeah, I
1: think I... it's like doing something blindfolded.
0: Wow, what a great yeah. uh, challenge by Netflix.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: but I, I don't trust Netflix at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> cool, cool, cool. <laughs> and that leads me to another rant. Uh,
0: no, but... Well, actually, though, I do get mad when I see Netflix, like... Like just brands in general on Twitter talk so glibly. But specifically Netflix makes me mad when they do that. I don't know why.
1: You mean like when they try to be authentically cool or whatever and they just come across as lame?
0: Yeah. Well, even like today, like today's uh, International Women's Day, which I guess is that, right. I don't know if that's a real thing. Is that a real thing?
1: Uh, I mean, if Instagram says right. so, yeah.
0: And now it's like you see all the brands like saying stuff for International Women's Day. It's like, what? Are you, what's going on? Right. I
1: think there's a Twitter account that's like brands that have used the phrase bay It's <laughs> just like, you know, it's funny. I would I'd recommend the follow.
0: Well, and that that gets me thinking now, and now I'm just really am going on a rant here, but please, like Captain Marvel's coming out today, and okay. I guess that's I feel like Disney uh, now, yeah, do di- it. Well, I feel like Disney's co opting like social justice and like feminism and stuff huh. to to have good media narratives to their movies.
1: You know, I can't comment on Captain Marvel. A good friend of mine actually wrote the oh, script for that. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to hear what you would say about it, though. Wait, they wrote
0: the what? The script. Okay, well, I haven't seen it, so I okay, can't. Okay, yeah, so, I'm yeah. seeing
1: it on Sunday.
0: Okay, well, I can't say anything about it so, I haven't seen but it.
1: But you know that they co-opted social justice. No, I don't think the writers did. Yeah. I think it, I blame Disney the company. Disney? Okay, fair enough, fair enough.
0: But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> you know what's
1: a really good idea? To have a writer's podcast where one by one we eviscerate every potential future <laughs> employer. And, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, we Netflix. did Netflix,
1: we did Disney. What's next, Hulu?
0: Yeah, well, uh, Bezos get out of here. Yeah, I be, I do do Amazon ads on this show. Oh, so, really? Yeah, but I do say mean things at Bezos. What on. do you think
1: of their shows? Their TV shows?
0: I actually like a couple of their shows.
1: Yeah, which ones?
0: Uh, <laughs> I like Catastrophe. Okay, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, well, I liked. Uh, oh, I Fleabag. I love Fleabag. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Ryan was fine. Uh, I don't think I've seen any other shows. Is there any any other shows that you've seen from them? Forever. Oh, I, I, Forever was was okay. I liked a lot of it, but there were parts of it yeah, that were better. I liked it. Yeah, I say overall I liked it. Yeah.
1: Um, there was that Mozart in the Jungle one. I never saw transparent. it.
0: Transparent. I've only seen a couple of us at Transparent. Yeah. So they're they're good.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, they got that the widow with Kate Beckinsale. Huh. That just came out. Who's uh and here's another rant coming on The Pete Davidson thing I think that's a fake relationship
1: <laughs> What do you mean you think that's a fake relationship?
0: Well I, you know how like celebrities do like oh, God this is the weirdest podcast episode I've ever done Where I just go <laughs> on Stop talking about comedy in the middle just to say things
1: We also did like 15 minutes on investment banking That's though. true
0: But uh, you know celebrities like when they have something coming out They uh-huh. like do stuff to like be in the news Organically Yeah. And so I, I you know No one's talking about the widow <laughs> so you know pete davidson's you know you want to go to a rangers game and tongue and uh do you think he
1: gets a kickback from the widow (laughs) yeah he gets
0: uh he gets money from amazon i don't know yeah that part maybe maybe it's where it falls (laughs) anyway (laughs) (laughs) so when you when you work on the business side of things for a while how do you like rebrand yourself as a writer
1: it was hard i had to basically quit the like the job market entirely and just start writing full-time So I tried to transition while I was on the business side into sort of more creative production-type opportunities. Um, But people can't help but see you as the MBA. And so all of the work I was assigned was, you know, HR, hiring people, overseeing the finances, that sort of stuff. So eventually I realized I was just going to have to quit and start writing full-time in order to make people see me as a writer.
0: And how do you, like, make a decision that big?
1: It took a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, I reached a point where I sort of, this is very earnest, but I sort of decided that, like, the one regret I would have in my life, if I looked back on, like, what I had done thus far, was not writing. And so I... I had had a boss once who was a real jerk and I, I mean I took away almost nothing from this work <laughs> relationship except after he got fired during the mortgage crisis. he he went into entertainment and he told me that um, I should not go into entertainment until I wake up in the morning and I literally can't imagine doing anything else because it's mm. such a tough industry and it's such a hard job and the chances of success are very low. So, that was sort of advice that I considered, and eventually I reached the point where I was like, if I don't do this now, like, I need to do this now. Mm-hmm. And that was when I quit. And,
0: and, and your boss was Kate Beckinsale. Yeah. So, <laughs> the widow on Amazon Prime Now. Uh, so, what did you start writing after that?
1: I had always been writing pilots, and I I wrote, I decided to write a feature after that. And my husband, who was actually from Danny Bonaducci's party yes. fame, uh, was also a Uh, on The Lampoon and a comedy writer. And we co-wrote a feature together. And um, just started sending that around and ended up getting a manager through that, from Mm -hmm. that feature. And then I just started writing tons of pilots, doing a ton, starting to do stand-up again. And um, yeah. Then wrote some sketches, wrote some late night stuff. Mm -hmm. got I got on SNL after that, so.
0: So yeah, how'd how'd the SNL job come about?
1: Um, I had written you know, my manager had emailed me sort of in May and said, are you interested in applying? And I had been focused, focused like mostly on scripted opportunities at the, up to that point. And I had had a few friends who had gone through SNL and I sort of, and I had actually applied when I was at Goldman, I had sent in a packet and, but, um, I, I decided to just throw in a packet and I, I spent, I would say a full month writing, you know, four sketches and I ended up submitting it and uh colin jost who's was a friend of mine from school had read it and he reached out to me and he asked if i wanted to submit jokes for the weekend update summer edition so i wrote some jokes for that and they ended up going in the show and then i found out i got an interview for snl and went in and met with lorne Mm -hmm. and then i found out two weeks later that i got they got it it was very exciting what was the
0: meeting with lorne like
1: (laughs) um so was sort of crazy i had i I was told I was coming in for interviews. I came in around noon to Thirty Rock and I met with a couple of, you know, head writers and producers and then they told me that they and I've never even really admitted this to anyone. They told me that I I would get a text message and find out if I was gonna meet with Lauren later or if not. Mm-hmm. And I you know, I wait I went around and for about five hours I sort of just wandered around waiting for this text message. And I, I, you know, I I never got one. And then I looked at my phone and I realized I had given the assistant my wrong phone number. (laughs) And I've actually never admitted that to anybody before. Only she and I know. And so I contacted her and I was just like, oh, my God, I gave you the wrong number. And she said it was totally fine. She had reached out to let me know that they wanted to meet me, but he didn't want to meet me until later in the evening. And so, yeah. So then I went back to 30 Rock. And hung out for like another hour or two and then uh, found out that I was going to meet with Lorne and I went into his office and it was already night at that point and he didn't have any lights on in his office. (laughs) It was he had this one tiny desk lamp on and he was sitting at his desk and it was very dark and I walked in and you know had a very brief interview with him
0: in the dark in much? the dark yeah wow that's power that's move scary. right yeah <laughs> wow how, what do you do when you're like, in an interview I, like I have that? to
1: assume i mean i say you know the sun had set to give him like the benefit of the doubt <laughs> that maybe like it had been light in there and then mm-hmm. it just subtly transitioned and he hadn't really paid attention to it um but it was definitely shocking to go yeah. into an interview in a dark room
0: <laughs> how do you prepare for like a big interview like that
1: there's not much you could do. I mean, I definitely like went online and listened to podcasts and read blogs about people who had had interviews to mm-hmm. try to get a sense of, you know, are there any questions or whatever that I could prepare for. I, um, I probably went back and rewatched a bunch of old SNL classics from my childhood and sort of thought about which my favorite characters and sketches were and that sort of thing. But, you know, sort of it's just showing up and
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's a little unpredictable.
0: And that was your, your first television writing job. Yeah. So what was that? And it's also like SNL. So what was that like transition like to that?
1: It was sort of crazy. I mean, so I mean, for me, the hardest part was coming from a very corporate world and a corporate environment where, you know, I spent my whole career working in places where you expected to behave in a certain way and then showing up in a comedy writing room and having to shed those like beliefs and all those lessons that I had learned, which were worthless to me at that point. And just like get comfortable with the fact that it was going to be sort of a shit show at times. It was going to be unpredictable and all this other stuff. So it was that was probably the craziest thing for me.
0: And I bet like the the schedule being so insane must have been like part like the biggest part of that.
1: Well, the schedule being insane was not hard for me because in oh, banking, yeah, hours, yeah, I had worked a bad hour. So that was actually totally manageable. It was just more like the expectations of how you were supposed to behave. Mm -hmm. like i'm not a you know somebody who like is loud or interrupts people or jumps in and like typically at tables you have you know that sort of Mm dynamics
0: what were like your first weeks like on the show (laughs) uh
1: trying to even remember i think at first you're just totally confused by absolutely everything i mean snl has a way of doing everything that is uh unique exclusively to SNL so no other friends who I had who were writers sort of could give me advice or guidance on what was going on I think you just sort of like you immediately showed up and you know they tell you to write a sketch the next day and you submit it and you learn you you know you just like trial by fire you go through all of the emotions and sort of you know the first couple of weeks the expectations are pretty low that you're going to submit like incompetent material and you're going to say dumb things mm-hmm. and you're going to embarrass yourself with pitch and then you sort of just like learn it, learn it by screwing up, I would say, yeah. and then, yeah, go from there.
0: Who are your like favorite people to work with?
1: Uh, well, I just got a text message from Kristen Bartlett, who is a oh. good friend of mine, She's and I wrote been with her. In that chair? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> in that, the podcast? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, I wrote a bunch with Gary Richardson. Oh, yeah. And uh, Michael Coleman, and you know, a bunch of other mostly uh, the new writers who I started with became some of my closest friends, and some of the new cast members, too.
0: Mm-hmm. So, is there a way you write differently for SNL than you would like for your own sketch?
1: Yeah, well, so now I'm writing for Jesus and Marrow on Showtime, which is a totally different type of show, tonally. And uh, it's the the way that I write for. SNL, you know, when you're writing you're thinking of the S N L cast members and their voices are dictating the jokes that you're writing in a lot of ways or like which character, you know, which movies to parody or whatever. It's like, oh, I think Kate looks like this person, so I wanna do that. And writing for Jesus and Marrow, it's like it's a much looser structure the sketches don't have to be a certain amount of time. They can be, you know, one page. They could be five pages. And the guys are, you know, they are sort of doing character acting for the first time. So you don't really, you can't think like, oh, Kenan's, I know Kenan's voice. He's been doing this forever. It's like, okay, these guys, I haven't really seen them do character actors. They have this podcast and they've done themselves. So it, it gives you a lot of creativity to just come up with like, Anything and throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks, and so that has been very fun. Mm-hmm. Trying to like come up, develop the tone of the show and what the sketch comedy on the show is like yeah. for guys who have never done sketch comedy before.
0: It's also cool because you're you're going in like at the when it starts, so you can kind of like yeah, exactly. I
1: mean, at SNL, it was like I was there for season <laughs> forty three, yeah. and they're you know this is how it is done, and this mm-hmm. was what works, and you know they have it pretty figured out here you can be part of creating like what every week I look at the show and I see little nuances and I'm just like, Oh wow, we did that, you know, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, pretty cool.
0: What do you think are like, uh, the keys to succeeding at SNL?
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think it's, everybody says it's about, you know, writing what you think is funniest. And I mean, frankly, doing a lot of topical stuff works well at SNL. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a super social environment, so I think, you know, getting along with the other writers and getting along with the producers mm-hmm. is something that helps too. And everybody there is super funny. I mean, I'm I'm like excluding the things that are obvious, like mm-hmm. being a talented writer and being funny and not being an idiot and mm-hmm. not saying like extremely problematic things at work. <laughs> but um, yeah, in terms of just like it, when you're there, I think probably, you know, mm-hmm. how you deal with other people and being savvy about the types of sketches you put forward because a limited number of sketches can get read every week. And a lot of times people are like, well, why would we do this now over something that's, you know, more topical mm-hmm. or relevant?
0: Well, you, you wrote during like a very, you were during the Trump, like yes. while Trump was there. So it's kind of like a you got to be topical. Right. That's well, that's it, not
1: necessarily true because on Jesus and Mara we don't touch Trump. Right. So you don't got to be topical. Yeah. People are in late night doing mostly Trump stuff. And it's been really fun to work for a show where we're not doing that. We're just trying to do what is genuinely the funniest, what we feel is the funniest, what feels like we still want to do relevant stuff, culturally relevant stuff. But, you know, we're not as focused on Trump saying hamburgers or like giving right. out Chick fil A or like, I mean, that shit is funny. It's funny when he calls like Tim Cook Tim Apple. Yeah. But, and we actually had a long debate last week about whether or not to use that clip. But, you know, ultimately we're just like every other late night show will do it. So. Let's try to do something else.
0: Mm-hmm. What was your uh, your favorite sketch from your time at SNL that you wrote?
1: Uh, well, so I the first sketch I ever wrote was from my hero Larry David, okay. and it was a celebrity Price is Right where he basically <laughs> plays Bernie Sanders and he you know goes off on capitalism. And it ended up being this the sketch as the week went on and started including more and more celebrity guests like Miley Cyrus was the musical host and she wanted to be in it, so it was really interesting to see how you have so many like celebrity impersonations and then you have these other people and Alec Baldwin ended up being in the sketch too oh, wow. so just like rewriting it up to the moment it ended up for a first sketch it was like a pretty big undertaking um and then the most fun I ever had was I wrote a sketch for the Charles Barkley episode with Gary Richardson and Sam Jay called Humper Dump. It oh was yeah a dating show where Charles Barkley 80 uh, is a contest ad is asking the guys on the show you know why should i choose you and charles barkley says if, if you don't pick me i'll kill myself <laughs> and somehow we were we were i remember writing we were like there's no way in hell this sketch is ever getting made <laughs> and it went to the table which was a shock and charles barkley liked it and pushed for it and mm-hmm. ended up not getting cut after dress i mean i can't i'm very happy that that one made it through
0: charles barkley is so funny
1: he's so funny
0: it is wild to think that he's like one of the best like power forwards of basketball at all time. I know and he's also incredibly funny. I know his
1: comic like timing is insane, yeah
0: uh with it's funny that like the the price is right sketch because that must have been like when you're writing you're like oh this is definitely getting on because <laughs> like all these celebrities are in.
1: well i mean they only joined on after it was already in the show oh i see yeah, yeah. so uh, when it was written initially and when it got picked it was somewhat smaller I mean, we saw had a lot of cast members playing celebrities but then uh we started writing in the actual celebrity guests mm-hmm. later in the week
0: When you're writing for, like, uh, the celebrities rather than the cast, are you thinking, like, oh, this person, I don't know what this person's, like, range is as an actor, and so I have to kind of, like, make it range like acting for you mean
1: for the, hosts for the host for the yeah. host
0: or like i guess like miley cyrus jumped in like like those people miley
1: yeah. cyrus is just like an incredible actress i like i guess yeah I, well i mean she she's very funny actually i wrote a line for her and i showed her and she's like this isn't funny oh. <laughs> i was like okay say it anyway um no, <laughs> i think i probably rewrote it and um and she also wanted then she wanted her boyfriend at the time chris Hemsworth, liam chris
0: uh One, liam
1: liam hemsworth who also be in the i think sketch. they're married they're married now yeah. yeah boyfriend at the time yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i know i know <laughs> um but yeah i think you know it's we are trying to think of who is delivering the lines when we write mm-hmm. i mean as I guess that's not really how a lot of other things get written. Usually you write right. something and then the ca- it gets cast, but there you like pre cast it in your mind and then you write towards those people. So mm-hmm. sort of interesting to try to guess how people will say certain things.
0: And you've also uh, written pieces for The New Yorker. Yes. How'd you get started with that?
1: I just started writing. I mean, I've always read The New Yorker, and actually I think of that as like the most similar to writing Lampoon pieces, sort of these short comedy prose pieces. So this summer I uh I started I had an idea and wrote it up and sent it in and they liked it so um after that I kept going.
0: What's your uh, general approach to writing uh, a piece?
1: Like a New Yorker style yeah. piece? I mean, it's easier if you have an idea, like if you observe something that's an unusual trend or something weird happens to you and then sort of blowing it out, because these are short pieces. So usually they're based on one small kernel of an idea versus like a sketch, which you're looking for something louder. Uh, So I'll like see something that I think is strange eh, or that like I observe in a way that is different from how other people observe it and then think How would that be structured into a piece could it be a letter would it be a list would there be sort of paragraphs that you could break up and then uh once i sort of decide on the style i go from there
0: yeah once you have that structure and you know like this is probably going to work how do you like uh approach it then
1: i mean i do i i have to imagine it's sort of in like uh what is an old-fashioned way i have a yellow notepad by my desk and i use a pen and i just start sort of free associating when i have the idea so i'll think of you know funny moments or jokes um and then when i start typing i sort of keep referring to that and like fleshing it out and then you know keep tweaking and reorganizing in the computer doc mm-hmm. but i always start with hand- handwriting just like not the structure but just things that i think would be funny about the premise mm-hmm. and then i try to sort of assemble those into a written piece
0: do you do that like uh for sketches and for like late night stuff i do
1: so like if i'm doing a commercial parody for example. I will watch, usually a, a commercial parody is combining something that is sort of feels like a real commercial with something sort of insane or whatever. So I'll watch real commercials that I'm trying to emulate and then I'll watch or like research the thing that I'm trying to j- like sort of jam in and take notes all along for funny ideas and then sort of structure it, beat, beat it out and then go from there. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you like about a um, prose comedy that's different from like uh, live comedy?
1: I mean, I really love writing prose because you can be so authentically yourself and what you think is funny. When you're writing for TV, it's a job, obviously. So you want it to be funny to you, but you also need it to meet a ton of other criteria. But when I'm writing New Yorker pieces, I can just 100% put in what I personally think is funny in my voice. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's sort of the truest representation of sort of what I would do if like all other obstacles or factors were removed, basically.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You get a lot of creative freedom. Uh, you don't have that in TV.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, there's as a, an introvert, I like the aspect of sort of sitting silently and writing, which is very different than being in a writer's room, which I also enjoy for a lot of reasons. I think it's fun to do both of those things. Mm-hmm. But you you have more time sort of alone with your thoughts, I feel like, mm-hmm. when you're writing prose.
0: And uh, now you work at Jesus and Marrow. How did that come about?
1: So I had finished at SNL and I knew that I was not going to be going back. And I was thinking of moving to L.A. because what I have always wanted to do is half hour comedy. Um, But then, you know, my agent sort of reached out to me and said that there was an opportunity to apply for this show. It was in New York was i interested and i knew these guys and i thought they were really funny and i loved that it was going to be very different from other late night opportunities so i threw in a packet and they liked it and actually i mean i didn't know anybody over there unlike snl where i had known some people um i knew nothing about anything Mm -hmm. and they just i was lucky that they liked the packet and then they called me in for an interview and hired me from there
0: so you were you were a fan of their like previous stuff
1: yeah i mean i had known their bodega boys podcast Mm -hmm. And I had watched some of their old show on Viceland. And I just, like, I haven't grown up in New York City. I really gravitated towards sort of the local comedy aspect. Yeah. And, like, being from the Bronx. And they talk about being on the subway and, like, just stuff that I, like, really like and relate to. And in my interview, I talked about growing up in New York City and, like, being told not to, like, to avoid the bloods when I was, like, 10 years old <laughs> and all this other stuff. And, you know, um, I feel like that that was something that I really liked about the Bodega Boys going into it.
0: It's really funny how they, they keep that local flavor like in their, in their show. Yeah. Uh, and it works, even if you don't know like New York stuff, which is funny because right. like, you, you can tell. I mean, You just kind of get the feeling from them.
1: Yeah. I mean, we were sort of nervous that going to Showtime, people would want us to sort of broaden out. But what we wanted to do was to introduce other Showtime viewers across the country to the New York comedy rather than trying to change their comedy to appeal to other people because i think that they're just like so charming and authentically themselves as cliche as that sounds and i don't think i think letting them go wild on the new york stuff is you know something other people can experience and enjoy if they don't yeah. know it
0: that must be such a fun room and a fun job
1: i love it yeah yeah i mean it's only six writers and um it's been everybody there is funny and from a different background and very and it's just it's been great
0: What was like the process of like when once they got all the writers and like developing the show and changing it from like the Viceland show?
1: I mean, when we when we started, we had, you know, eight weeks of pre-production and they hired us as, you know, the same time they hired everybody else. And it was. We were starting from, you know, zero pretty much, like, just thinking about the set. What are the credits going to be? I mean, we got to be involved in pretty much every decision in terms of building the show. I mean, you know it's going to be a bigger show than Viceland. They, they've got a bigger budget. They're going to have a big set. You know, they didn't have a studio audience at Viceland. Now they do. Um, there's, you know, and then they also didn't have writers at viceland right. so that was unusual and they didn't do any sketches or anything like that so the idea was to build it into more of like you know a variety talk show and um yeah
0: obviously so much of that show is about like Jesus and mara like interacting with each other and, like their personalities and like you said like they're originally they're, like most of their stuff hasn't been scripted so how does that like change now with you guys coming in
1: so, I mean, they're, the first act where they talk about news stories, that's still mostly ad-libbed. Mm-hmm. Like, we find the stories and maybe, like, set up a line just to introduce it, but they still do that unscripted. Where the writers get involved is sort of more for uh, the field pieces where they go out and and, you know, talk to New Yorkers or they did an Investigates piece where they looked at, you know, something with bodega signs and helping out local bodega owners – and then they did a green book sketch which is a fully scripted sketch so i mean the writers are obviously writing the fully scripted sketches and then being involved in coming up with ideas for experiential things for them to do with guests and field pieces and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing
0: uh that first episode with aoc was was so great
1: yeah oh my gosh we were so lucky to have her on the show Mm -hmm. and she also sort of had committed to doing the show before she became the most famous person in America. Oh, really? It was like, you know, I mean, it was over the course of like three weeks for when she showed up to Congress and, you know, uh, became extremely much more famous. But she was friendly with the guys. You know, they're all from the Bronx and Mm -hmm. connect over that. So it was really exciting to have her, especially at that moment. I mean, she's very hot right now, so... Mm -hmm.
0: As a as a white woman, how do you like write for these two like black guys who have, like different like life experience and different stuff going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, a you know a lot of it is I listen to their podcast and I try to choose topics that appeal to them. What I don't do is like try to write in their voice or right. throw in slang. I like let them do that pass of it. So what I try to do is write a sketch. Like I come up with something that I think is a funny idea, a commercial parody for a new product or something. I write it out, I structure it out, I put in all the jokes that I think would be funny and then, you know, occasionally for their lines, I don't try to add too much, you know, slang or color or anything to their lines i just write it exactly straight as i would think it would be and if they want to tweak it or make it sound more in their voice then they do that they do that both ahead of time and on set so that's interesting
0: to think about because you know you're always taught like for a packet you know you want to get the voice of the show but it's like oh this could be like extremely offensive if i did that
1: right yeah no i definitely uh, avoid that and i think they would prefer me to avoid (laughs) doing that yeah
0: (laughs) so the show is uh it's three episodes in right now right Mm -hmm. do you think it's like You think it's totally found its way or do you think it's like gonna change a lot as like the season progresses
1: i mean i think we're changing things slightly Mm -hmm. but i think this is i imagine pretty close to what it's gonna be like going forward i mean and the changes we're making aren't things that people in the audience would necessarily perceive like from the first episode to the second episode we reduced the size of the studio audience for example and made some small changes but um, I think this is pretty much what it is. It Every episode, what the, like, ratio of field pieces to musical acts to sketches is going to be, I think, something that is still being considered. But mm-hmm. I think you're seeing what's going to be the first <laughs> season of Jesus and Mara.
0: It's fun watching the late night show, like, start. Like, it's fun, like, yeah, I don't know if you're watching the Conan show at all, the new one.
1: I've seen some clips of it online. I mean, I'm a huge Conan yeah. fan. Yeah.
0: It's just interesting to watch, like, a late night show start and see yeah. how, like, the changes, Like the like, if you watch, like, now to, like, three months from now. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you uh what would you like to be doing next?
1: I would like to stay at Jesus and Mara for a while and see how the show evolves. It's it's a really great job. I mean, not only are is everybody there super fun and funny and it's, you know, fun, pleasant atmosphere and is proving to me that you can be in a comedy writer's room of people who are just genuinely collaborative, nice people. Uh, but I'm curious to see where it goes, so mm. And then you know, develop my own stuff on the side. Keep writing f- for the New Yorker and that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. All right, so we're gonna wrap up with you even your thoughts on a sketch idea I have. Okay. So this would be kind of like um, a Conan styles like late night sketch. So uh, co- like the host is talking and he's like, "So tomorrow's guests are gonna be uh, like uh, Blake Lively and uh, the Foo Fighters, something like that." It's not the joke. Um, and then someone from the audience starts like booing. And uh they find out it's because he really wants Dennis Quaid to be the guest. Mm-hmm. And so then um they keep going like back and forth, like you gotta have the Quaid man on, he's got the best anecdotes, he's he's your guy. Uh and it comes out that he's Dennis Quaid's agent and he's just been going to each late night show to try to get Dennis Quaid to be a guest mm-hmm. via the audience. So that's the sketch
1: idea. And have you pitched this to 92 other comedy writers? Or is, this, do I get my, is this a new sketch this is a idea? New ske- it's
0: a new sketch every episode.
1: Okay, well, first of all, <laughs> I absurd think it's a fa- I, That'd be absurd <laughs> if
0: I pitched that sketch every just, episode. I thought
1: maybe you were just trying to perfect the Dennis Quaid oh, 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 sketch. The, uh, I think it's a funny idea for a sketch. Um, I think you could beat him being Dennis Quaid's agent. Yeah. I think it could be Dennis Quaid... Or oh, it could be just somebody who loves Dennis Quaid. But I think that going to agent is too
0: like, sensical. It's too
1: clear. Right. Yeah. It makes it's like, oh, yeah, of course the agent wants to get him on the show. Um, I also think, you know, it It ha- for a sketch, it would be nice if, if it heightened. So instead of mm. him just booing to get Dennis Quaid on, if you could think of other things he might do to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to signal to everybody that he wants Quaid, the Quaid mm-hmm. man there. Um, but, you know, I think it has potential.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Anything you want to plug? No. All right. <laughs> cool. Thanks for coming by. <laughs>